0: Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo. Expand your imagination and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Norman Horn, founder of LibertarianChristians.com, now the Libertarian Christian Institute. With me today is our executive director, Nick Gosling, and LCI board member, Doug Stewart. Today, we are going to talk about an issue that is familiar to most Christians, but one they might not be inclined necessarily to associate with their libertarian ideas. Christians believe in doing what is called spiritual warfare. And this has implications for what it means to engage the world in which we live with the power of the gospel. What we hope to do in this episode is open up a discussion about the importance of understanding the battle for a free society within the cosmic framework of spiritual warfare. Let's begin with a couple of of passages of scripture from the epistles. We'll start off in Ephesians chapter six in a very familiar passage on the armor of God. So we'll start in verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. And next we'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So these passages have been very interesting to me ever since I was you know, even a young Christian, uh, and in high school, I thought a lot about 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 10, in fact. And one thing that I find interesting is that we often, at least prior to me being a libertarian, I should say, I sort of felt like that there was a weird disjuncture here uh, even then in so far as that, well, okay, are these – Uh, battles that we are waging uh, and then and you know spiritual battles and then compare that to certain other things that we see in the world today battles being waged on a physical level are they uh, are they orthogonal here are they not to to, are never the twain shall meet sort of thing that we can live as though those two things are completely separated at all and the and there's an interesting uh, dichotomy there that I think that it's it sometimes is easy to mistake and uh, to, to make a mistake around. Uh, so, guys, where do you come down on this? How do you guys think about spiritual warfare in the context of these verses and others that I know you want to bring up? Where do you want to start?
0: Yeah, Norm, I agree that this is a puzzling topic. And I think it's in part because I think many Christians, especially those in the West, have a narrow view of salvation not a narrow in you know I'm not saying that in a bad way but that we think of salvation as all about us as individuals and we lose sight of and and it's understandable we lose sight of the what I might call the cosmic scope of salvation let me read something from colossians chapter 1 for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him that is christ And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is Paul describing a bigger vision of what God has in mind for his creation. Well, what might that bigger vision be? To some people, some theologians might say that we are liberated from something. There's a Christus Victor atonement theory, and that basically describes one way of looking at the cross is that Christ has had victory over, well, the question is, victory over what? What have we been liberated from? And so, when we think about something like spiritual warfare, there's a number of sort of factions in Christianity. There's the people on the progressive, in the progressive church who, they don't really know how to handle all this talk about the devil, and they sort of, like, downplay it. On, the, on another side of you know, Christianity, you have what could be a maybe considered an obsession with the demonic, not in, not in the sense that they embrace it, of course, but in the sense that they are always talking about the devil, and um, it becomes very overtly part of their theology. It's all about doing battle with the devil, and what ends up happening on that end is they, they over-personalize it. And then you have kind of a third group where they don't really, you know, do battle with the devil, and they don't pray out demons and do exorcisms and things like that, but you better be sure that you believe in a literal devil, because uh, that would make you not really a Christian if you do. So, there's a, there's a huge array of people believing in things about the devil and spiritual warfare, and one of the things that is foundational to understanding what Jesus did in coming to earth so we have to, you know, go back to the Scripture, and we can see that in John, 1 John 3, one of the reasons was to destroy the works of the devil, to disarm the rulers and authorities from Colossians 2, and in Hebrews we read that uh, Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So no matter where you fall in the Christian spectrum of believing in a literal devil or um, you just kind of, you know, write it off as some sort of metaphor— the Bible talks about a devil, and if we don't talk about a devil, then we're going, to, we're going to ignore something that's a very important aspect of the Bible. The consequence of Christ's victory is that he is seated on the rightful throne. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. The whole cosmos is liberated from a tyrannical and destructive ruler, and humanity is delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Colossians chapter 1. If you think about what's going on there, the whole cosmos is liberated from a tyrannical and destructive ruler, I think that phraseology might remind us a little bit of the kind of sort of libertarian value streak that we have in us, in that we are wanting people to be liberated from a tyrannical government or state. Recently, I finished a book by psychologist Richard Beck called Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the devil for the doubters and the disenchanted. Beck claims to be a theological progressive, and one of the things that he has learned in the past few years is that having a theology of the devil is important for the church in engaging what he would call social justice, what we might talk as doing spiritual warfare. One of the things that he aims to do in the book is to get Christians who downplay the the talk of the devil in the New Testament, and who are, frankly, uncomfortable talking about it or ignore it. He basically claims that if they do that, they're no better than Thomas Jefferson cutting out miracles in the Bible. And so, Beck finds spiritual warfare, and I really like the way that he puts this. Spiritual warfare is shorthand for the Christ-shaped pushback against all the forces in the world working antagonistically against the kingdom of God. And so we can talk about doing spiritual warfare as fighting for justice, fighting against poverty. That's what the left typically talks about. But when you leave something out like the devil, you really don't have an enemy that you're fighting against. You're fighting against this sort of amorphous thing that we don't like happening in the world, and it doesn't really get behind what's going on. Beck describes love as a heroic act of resistance in a world governed by hate, violence, and indifference.
1: So, Doug, it sounds like what you're saying is that on the one hand, we can potentially make the mistake of uh, over-emphasizing the activity of angels and demons all around us to a certain extent and make that some uh, externalize. A lot of the types of things that and and bad things that we experience, and even things that are happening around us in social circumstances. And that's problematic on its own. It's also problematic, though, to completely avoid the discussion surrounding what happens in society around us as though that is totally divorced from any kind of spiritual warfare. Uh, And ideas uh, that surround uh, about that we can that we can engage around the devil or Satan and what all of those things mean as well. Is that would you say that that's kind of where you're going with that?
0: Yeah, I think the overemphasis is uh, in many ways dangerous, but also the underemphasis, which usually those who have an underemphasis are just like kind of afraid of really dealing with it because they don't want to admit that they believe in the devil uh, because, you know, then they're going to be seen as, you know, anti-scientific or things like that. So the underemphasis on spiritual warfare or a belief in, say, a literal devil uh, becomes problematic on on kind of both ends.
1: It's not just common for say progressive Christians, for instance, to try and uh, and and ignore the possibility of, of or the interaction of the devil per se. It's something that conservatives do too, because we want we don't want at times to go out on a limb and say the devil made me do it. Kind of argumentation. That's not a that's something that we we obviously don't want to believe in, and we think that that's uh, problematic. So I think that like that's not exclusively one way or the other uh, with regard to kind of liberal versus conservative. But there is sort of other ways of thinking about it. You know, you don't have to to go either way of those. There's kind of a, a better way of thinking of it.
0: What happens is I I think it's sort of unpopular to talk about the devil in that way because as soon as you begin talking about the devil, you know, the devil made me do it, or, you know, you know, Lord, we're gonna pray the, the devil, you know, to, to get away from our child who's sick or stuff like that, you begin sounding like the people who are overemphasizing this. And I think there's a stigma attached to it. Um, and, and I think the the book here by Richard Beck, he is really wanting that stigma to go away because it's very important in his mind. Uh, that, we, that we engage in spiritual warfare, that we're not afraid to talk about the devil. And in the book itself, he doesn't really come down on the side of, well, is there a literal devil? Because whether or not there is or whatever side of the debate one is on, it's not really the point. The Bible talks about the devil. What is the meaning behind what the Bible is saying about the devil? Because if we miss out on that, we're gonna miss out on almost the whole point of the kingdom of God, and that's fighting against all that is antagonistic toward the kingdom. Because if we can't name what's going on behind injustice, then we're just naive. If we just think that all there is is there's this, these things out there happening, however, you know, I know the left comes up with things that you know we may not see as you know evil per se, like any wealth inequality and things like that. But there are true injustices going on in our world, true th- things that we would all define as that is evil. If we don't have a way of describing, this is why that exists and this is what we're fighting against what we're going to end up doing is demonizing each other rather than aligning with a common enemy that is behind this so he he would say and i agree that it's a little naive to just sort of you know address actual behavior in the world as if there were no spiritual component behind it and so he would say that it's pretty important to to give this a name and to understand what is going on
1: okay that seems that seems pretty reasonable to me and i i feel like that's you know that makes a lot of sense, and that naming it and bringing it to kind of in a affor- coalescing around a series of ideas, that that really helps to, well, to understand what's happening. Nick, where do you come down on this?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I haven't read uh, Beck's book, but uh, from my conversation with Doug, he mentions that uh, Beck does cite from Walter Wink uh, pretty prolifically, and I have read. Walter Wink's trilogy on the powers, which is regarded as probably the best academic work on that specific subject uh, that's ever been written. So what Wink does, uh, and these books were written in the 80s, early 90s. Wink's been dead for several years. uh, And he's, he's often identified as being on the theological left, but I don't think that's a fair characterization when you really get into his work. But he asks us to step back and take a look at, first, what is the use of these words and terms for powers throughout the New Testament? And he shows that they can be used to refer to all kinds of different things. It can refer to kings. It can refer to chief priests. uh, It can refer to dominion or throne or authority or angelic powers and principalities. So there's a very wide range of use and the way the New Testament authors use it is very uh, fluid, as he says. And so when you look at it, this this language in many different uh, forms and usages is all throughout the New Testament, this whole notion of the powers. And like we talked about looking at Colossians and Second uh, Corinthians and Ephesians earlier, this really goes to the heart of how The apostles, and and specifically uh, Paul in this case, saw the ministry of Christ. One of the key things that the ministry of Christ accomplishes is he overcomes the powers and brings them into submission to his lordship. And so I like what you guys were talking about earlier with there's this tendency to see salvation as overly individualistic. And I think maybe this is a a byproduct of our our Westernism um, because the Bible is fundamentally an Eastern book, specifically an ancient Near Eastern book. And ancient Near Eastern writers had much more appreciation for uh, community and thinking in, collective terms. And I know that's kind of a dirty word for libertarians, but I'm speaking theologically here, theologically collective terms, the way they viewed the world. And so uh, Wink tries to frame the discussion in that context. And then he goes back and he looks through the Old Testament also, and we see all these different references that oftentimes, oftentimes, we as Christians don't know what to do with, like references to Uh, angels of the nations. Uh, We see references throughout the Old Testament to these other gods. Uh, And sometimes in the wisdom literature, Yahweh is pictured as the high god above all these lesser gods. And that can be very confusing if, if we don't put it into this larger context. And so Wink is suggesting essentially that this The powers, these spiritual powers permeate metaphysical reality. There is the one true God, Yahweh, the supreme creator, but there are lesser spiritual beings. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. We typically refer to these as angels and, and demons. But what he's uh, propounding is this concept that There are spiritual entities that are embodied in institutions throughout the world. So when the Bible talks about things like angels of the nations or angels of the churches, Wink would suggest that there are literally angelic beings of these various institutions. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. And so when we're engaging in spiritual warfare, it's a matter of being cognizant of the fact that everything we do in the physical realm and everything that happens in the spiritual realm is fundamentally interconnected. And one of the interesting things he brings up in the discussion is he talks about how if you ever look at an organization, a business or, or a group, what have you, um, As it changes over time, if different people join, different people leave, Uh, you could have almost 100% turnover in the individuals in the organization, but the tenor and spirit of the organization, the culture of it, the way it acts, the way the individuals conduct their business uh, seems to persist. And Even if people in the organization have a problem with the way things are being done, uh, let's say it's a corrupt uh, business corruption or or government corruption or whatever it may be, even if you have individuals in there who have a problem with it, they all just kind of seem to throw up their hands and go, well, nobody has the ability to actually change this. We don't know what to do. And Wink is suggesting that that is really emanating from the deeper spiritual realities that are going on behind the scenes. And so it's almost anti-Gnostic. You know, so the ancient... Uh, Gnostic sect operated on this idea that the physical is is bad, it is something to be liberated from, it doesn't have ultimate relevance, it's all about the spiritual. Wink is suggesting that the New Testament vision and, and the Old Testament also, the integrated uh, Word of God, would say that it is all fundamentally interlocking the spiritual and the physical cannot be separated they affect one another Uh, what happens in the spirit realm directly affects the physical realm and vice versa so as we engage in spiritual warfare it's not just a matter of oh we're going to cast out demons and try to heal some i mean i'm not taking a position on charismatic gifts at all i'm just making a point here we're not going to try to just heal this guy or cast out these demons or cast out a spirit of, of poverty or or fight against our, our personal sin, which we blame on a demon like you guys talked about earlier. It might involve that, but it's so much more. Our, and as libertarian Christians, as we view our politics and the way we engage in political issues from a Christian context – this just goes right to the heart of it because we have to recognize that ultimately we aren't just dealing with uh, some people with some bad policies and that if we just you know, educate enough people or get enough people to vote the right way or whatever, that's magically going to solve the problem and we'll never have any problems ever again. That's not how it works because behind the scenes, there are malevolent spiritual powers set against the kingdom of God and spiritual warfare is about engaging that uh, and trusting that Christ has already achieved the victory and he is king and he is inaugurating and furthering his kingdom and one day he will have total triumph because he has already put the powers to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross like Colossians says so as we go to, go to battle, if you will, in spiritual warfare, we have to recognize that and realize that we can't win the day just on the political front. It requires uh, just as importantly, if not more so, the spiritual front in order to pave the way for that practical victory in the human realm
0: you know this reminds me of the verse in 1 John 4 beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether are they from whether they are from god you know i think we often have this like assumption that evil is this like dark spooky demonic force like in the movie the exorcist or something like that but you know there's a there's a sense in which we don't realize how much the spirit of the age has taken on what we may call a demonic or uh, evil spirit. One of one of those might be things like what happened during the Holocaust. You know, there was it wasn't just one man who did all that work. There was a sense of impressive power and allegiance to a person and to a cause that people got caught up in that they didn't test the spirits. They were unable to discern the spirit of the age. And we're called not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, Paul writes in Romans. What happens if we're conformed to the pattern of this world, we're going to be taken in by the demonic. And I realized that saying that, taken in by the demonic, you might think like there's these individual demons taking us in, well we can describe it however we want but we do not want to align with the patterns of this world and that's that is kind of a scary thought and it's not something that you know we can think oh well i'm a christian i'm not going to go along with that and i'm not going to be you know running along with demons or anything like that i'm going to be on the side of god but you know the line but be- you know the line between good and evil runs through all of us and there are times at which we do conform ourselves to the pattern of this world and we often don't know it and it is our job to think about what is it that we're doing in the world that aligns with the kingdom of God and the purposes of what the cross was all about. Or are we being antagonistic with God's purposes? This connects back to how we
1: were discussing the operative uh, ways in which we think about angels and demons in a sense. It would be, it, It's a big change in the way we think. When, if any time we when we kind of think about ourselves, or we think about the way that we're behaving as conforming to the pattern of this world in some way, that we kind of recognize that as a demonic thought. Not in the sense that you are being possessed by a demon, uh, in you know, like for like we're from the Exorcist or something to that stuff, something to that effect, uh, but rather that that is the essence of what is what is demonic, what is of Satan, what is of the devil, that it is of the pattern of this world. And what's really interesting to me about that is that like, when you begin to kind of shift your thinking just ever so slightly around that little point, you realize that that's where spiritual warfare uh, happens first and foremost in your own heart. And after you're begin to recognize that, you begin to recognize it as happening outside of you as well. And that there's something external to you that is happening, something happening around you that you're also uh, engaging it with. And it's not, that it's both within your heart and it's outside of you as well.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I think Beck brings out in the book that really stood out to me is he thinks that when you talk more and do more spiritual warfare. What you end up with is less physical violence. And what does he mean by that? A lot of times people who really don't want to talk about spiritual warfare and demons or the devil is they believe that if you begin talking about the devil or demons, what you are prone to do, what you may be prone to do, which we're not called to do as Christians, is demonize other people. The problem with that is Beck thinks that if you don't talk about spiritual warfare, you are going to be prone more so to demonizing other people because all you're going to do is you are going to pin the demonic on a particular individual or group of individuals or actual human people rather than realizing that what's going on behind that is the demonic. And if we know that individuals are made in the image of God, if we affirm that they are human beings that God loves, then we are going to be more prone to say, ah, they're caught up in this cosmic struggle as well. They might have been taken in by the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. However, we know that there is a kingdom that can counteract this, that is an act of resistance using love. What you do is you sort of undemonize individuals because you realize that they're caught up in the struggle just as much as we might be rather than saying ah it's us versus you know name the president you don't like or the politician you don't like or it's ah it's us versus you know name the group that you don't like instead of demonizing groups or individuals we're able to identify the real problem which is that there's a cosmic battle going on rather than You know, demonizing people. So spiritual warfare, Beck says, energizes your anger, but lovingly redirects that anger away from human beings and toward a common enemy. Spiritual warfare gives us a vision of how human beings can become captives to larger unseen forces that trap us in perpetual conflict. We come to see how all of us are being manipulated as pawns in a larger game, a game that is continually pushing us toward violent, hateful confrontation. Focusing on those larger forces creates a capacity for mercy. We follow Jesus' example as he prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus finds mercy for those who killed him because he uh, he saw them as leaves being blown about by violent winds, political, social, cultural, psychological, and historical
1: winds. So instead of scapegoating your fellow human being and trying to destroy them because they're the ones who are the ultimate enemy and if they are destroyed, then your problem, your, your, the, the thing that you're, that is bad that you're experiencing will then go away. It engages it where it ought to be, which is against, in a sense, the, the thing surrounding, the idea, the, the, that, and that is the, demon, the, quote, demonic force, if you will. So instead of thinking of your fellow human as the embodiment of the enemy, you realize that 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 human is someone for whom Christ died, and is someone for whom uh, Christ is trying to remove the demonic from their lives. Does that seem? I mean, that's kind of what I hear you're saying in in some respects.
0: Yeah, I think it is too. I mean, another another way to look at this. This is sort of the divide between you know those who you know agree in about this. Let me read NT Wright. The modern world divides into those who are obsessed with demonic powers and those who mock them as outdated rubbish. Neither approach does justice to reality. Despite the caricatures, the obsession, and the sheer muddle that people often get themselves into on this subject, there is such a thing as a dark force that seems to take over people, movements, and sometimes whole countries, a force or, as it sometimes seems, a set of forces that make people do things they would never normally do. Fascinating. That's... That seems to
1: go right in line with a lot of other authors that we've that we've engaged in, both on the website in the past and on this podcast, and we'll continue to talk about those people and those ideas. People like Rene Girard and Jacques Ellul, uh, and and we've already brought up Walter Wink and uh, other folks like you know Stanley Hauerwas and and uh, and great Christian thinkers who've who've kind of alluded to these in various different ways. Uh, But in many respects, it kind of has an interesting coalescing effect when we start thinking about it in terms of the grander social institutions. And by grander, I mean not that they're awesome, but that they're just bigger. Uh, Things like the state and these ideas that we war against. And and in fact, that's an interesting parallel here on some respects. You know, we often talk about in – uh, in just purely libertarian circles about the war of ideas that's going on around us. And we re- recognizing that that's really of more pivotal importance than who wins the next election, right? So is there any other parallel here that, that kind of – does that make sense to you guys?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the uh, other things that Walter Wink brings up in his trilogy is this whole idea of what constitutes uh, the the myth – that sort of drives our, our reality in our society. And when we hear the word myth uh, as, as kind of modern people, it has a certain connotation as being fake uh, or, or fanciful or just otherwise something not to be taken seriously. But that isn't how the ancients thought of myth. Uh, a myth in the ancient way of thinking was a story that may be true, may not be true, Uh, but it conveyed a truth. It conveyed something about ultimate reality. Uh, So it really has no bearing on whether or not it it, it factually, uh, literally is true or not. But so when Wink and other authors uh, talk about the ancient myth, they're talking about uh, this sort of driving narrative of how we think about our societies, our origins, and our destinies. And so he talks about Uh, what he calls the myth of redemptive violence. And he's drawing on the ancient Babylonian creation myth called the uh, Enuma Elish. And in that, you have uh, all the gods, and they are being threatened by the sea creature, Tiamat. And in the ancient world, the sea was seen as a place of danger and chaos. Uh, And so among the council of gods steps forth Marduk, and he basically says to all the other gods, I'll kill Tiamat for you, but in return, you're going to give me unlimited and unquestioned power. And so Marduk then slays Tiamat uh, in a graphic battle, and he rips her body apart and uses it to fashion the heavens and the earth. And so in the ancient Babylonian way of thinking, this is how the world came into being, through bloodshed and conquest, and through the power and authority of this now-tyrant god, Marduk. And so what Wink is saying is when you look at Genesis and the biblical creation account, that is being set against these other competing myths of the ancient East. In the biblical account, God is the God of order. He is the God who brings creation ex nihilo. He fashions life and creates Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathes life into him. So it's radically different from these other ways of thinking. Uh, and so when you kind of follow that through to its logical uh, conclusion, if your if your myth as as a Christian, and again that's not a negative word. We just mean if your narrative of who God is and what he's doing in the world and who you are in relation to that is based on a god of order and life, then that is going to totally dismantle all these tyrannical competing power structures that are based on the alternate myth of domination and conquest.
0: Nick, one of the things that I'm reminded about as you talk about the creation story set against the Babylonian story, the creation story, the Babylonian creation story at Enuma Elish is what we read in Revelation that the sword that Jesus wields comes out of his mouth. And that sounds very interesting to me because how is the world created in the Jewish and Christian creation story? God speaks, and that is how creation happened. And if you take a look at Revelation, Jesus speaks and that is how evil is conquered, not through violence, just like the world wasn't created through violence. God created the world and every creation story in the ancient near east was the earth was created out of violent violence or conflict. Yeah. And uh, this one isn't. Ours is not. And that is a very proud statement in in, you know, In Christian history, I think is that our God is not like those other gods. On on the flip side, at the end, how does all this wrap up? It is not through violence; it is through His Word. Doug, that even connects back to what we said,
1: what we quoted from Ephesians chapter six early on in this podcast, which is that. Uh, we, all, we are called to put on the full armor of God. In part of that, the only offensive thing that we're even suggested to take on is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Word of God there has to mean Jesus Himself, who is the Word, as we as we learn in, in John one. And so that's that's really interesting to me. I think that that really you know takes it takes us into a different level of thinking about how we interact with other people as well, because as Jesus came to serve and not to be served uh, and to not conform to the pattern of this world and to not do things in the way in which the uh the, the 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 powers of this world behave and how they and how they act but rather in in a completely different way disrupt how things were, were happening uh, I think that's that really calls us to a new a new standard of behavior even in the sense of our political activism in a sense. Uh, so, you know, when we interact with other people, it's not under the auspices of trying to gain advantage and trying to abscond away with power and to get, you know, the seat at the imperial table and to try and and make our way into control and domination ourselves to win back the world for Jesus in that respect, to try and use power structures in, in, for the advantage of God in that way. That's not how we're supposed to behave and, and act in in. In contrast, uh, we, use, we use the weapons of nonviolence. We use ideas and we realize that we are not combating against those people and trying to destroy them, but rather to win them over because those are people for whom Christ
0: died. I think it was Stanley Hauerwas who said he was a pacifist because he knows himself so well that he's a mean SOB. I think to some extent I would say that I'm a libertarian – because I'm pretty confident that if I were b- to be king of the world, it would be really awesome. You know, that's what I think, right? It would be really awesome. But you know, when I really know myself and I realize, yeah, I would really harm a lot of people, maybe that's not what should happen is to give power, concentrate power in the hands of a few or especially one individual, even me. And so. It's it's really important that we avoid getting caught up in, you know, the spirit of the age, what Beck refers to as the Lucifer effect. You know, he says, you know, in his book, Spiritual Warfare isn't just about political resistance to oppressive and unjust power structures. It's also about our own thirst for power, status and influence. We're all tempted and corrupted by the Lucifer effect, tempted to take a second cookie for ourselves, tempted to make a power grab because deep down we all think the world would be better off if we were calling the shots. You can tell that even as a progressive, Beck has really wrestled with his own demons, not to make a cliche out of that factor, but he kind of understands this intuitively. He is a psychologist, so I mean, he, he he knows how to understand himself. But it's really about stepping out of the pattern of the world and stepping into the pattern of the kingdom of God. And what's, I think, a practical takeaway is this. Let's think about the church a little bit. So, it you know Jesus really wasn't a political activist, but as Beck would say here, he created a community characterized by two things: the practices of care and of peace. And so, in in Beck's book, he reads you know he lists a couple scripture verses. I'm going to read Romans twelve nine: Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Ephesians four two: Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. 1 John 3:16. this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 12, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Romans 12 if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 14. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. 2 Corinthians 13:11. finally brothers and sisters rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live at peace and the love of the, and the God of love and peace, will be with you. So the church is where we come together and practice care and peace. Beck calls it a laboratory of love and reconciliation, a workshop of sharing and forgiving and testing ground of mercy and grace. What really settled it in for him in that doing social justice, as he was very, very uh, interested in, and he says it's very easy to, you know, love the poor on Facebook by posting memes, but he actually started attending a church that spent time with, and it wasn't just that the church spent time with, this was the church as they met on a weekly basis with those who were poor. And Beck also started going to doing prison ministries, and he started realizing that doing spiritual warfare can't take place at this ethereal, nebulous, you know, social justice, activism level. That was a way too narrow way of looking at it. Spiritual warfare is done by sharing bad coffee with other Christians who you really don't like. But you know that because you're part of the same community, you are to practice peace with people that you don't like or that just rub you the wrong way and irritate you. And doing social justice isn't just about fighting for the right cause, voting for the right person who is behind the right cause, but actually getting, as we might say, getting down on our knees and serving those who have needs. It's hard work. This, what he calls a laboratory of love in the church.
1: Well, we've discussed a lot of different ideas surrounding the topics of spiritual warfare. Today And we hope you've enjoyed that and benefited uh, from that at least a little bit. And we started off with Scripture, and we're going to end with Scripture as well, just like we just did. So to conclude, we'd like to uh, thank you so much for listening in. And if you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback to us, we highly encourage it. And you can reach us at podcast at com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. We hope to hear from you soon, and we look forward to talking with you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project with the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.